Last year, when I wrote the case study on how we sold one of our websites for mid-six figures, I made the argument that advanced SEOs should focus on competitive niches. And I said that because I believe that the payout for affiliate offers in competitive niches increases much faster than the SEO difficulty to rank for terms in these niches. What I meant is that if you're in a niche like personal finance, for example, it may be three times as hard to rank on Google, but the payouts are 10 times or 20 times higher or even more if you're doing in a volume. But tackling competitive niches is quite different from jumping into more casual niches. And there's a few things you need to know or you might be struggling a little bit at the beginning. And that's why we recorded this podcast so we can share our experience with you and you can do well right from the beginning. But before we jump into the episode, I wanted to let you know that Authority Hacker Pro, our most complete and advanced training, is coming back this Sunday. We only let people in once or twice a year, so every time we do, it's a bit of a mini event, and this time is going to be no exception. We have surprises, we have announcements coming up really soon, so you know, keep your ears open and watch out for the stuff that we publish in the next few days. And to make sure that you don't miss on any of our announcements, extra content, and just Authority Hacker Pro itself, go on authorityhacker.com pro and sign up for the notifications there. But now, let's jump onto the episode. Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast. And now your hosts, Gail Breton and Mark Webster. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Authority Hacker Podcast. Today we are pretty much one week away from the launch of Authority Hacker Pro. It's coming out this Sunday, so like if you're watching this on Monday, less than a week to wait and then Authority Hacker Pro is going to come back and to actually celebrate Authority Hacker Pro, which is our most advanced kind of like courses, community, etc. I wanted to take a bit of an advanced topic to talk about today and we are going to be talking about tackling competitive niches with someone that has tackled competitive niches with me and that's Mark. So how's it going, Mark? <laughs> it's going good, thanks. Just wanted to share this lovely Asana coffee flask thing, I guess, that I received. Why do you get all these things and I never get anything? I know, I know. People just love giving me gifts apparently. So Yeah, I think you're a lot more sociable than me with them, that's why. But actually, uh, can you tell the story of like uh, why you got it? Yeah, so we reached out to, we use Asana a lot throughout our content production processes, our editorial processes. Back in the day, we used to use a lot of Google Sheets and just Skype rooms and all sorts of crazy stuff, and it was a mess. I'd say our processes are really well organized now, so what we did is we reached out to Asana because we noticed they had a lot of case studies on their website, which also linked to the people being covered in the case study. Uh, so we reached out to them and told them how much we loved their product. And if they wanted to do a case study on us, we'd be open to it. And we discussed it with them. We had an interview with them. One of their writers spoke with us at length. And then they put it together. And I was chatting to her afterwards. And she said, what's your address? I'll send you some swag. And so she sent me this. Yeah, and we got a DIY. And we got a link, link out of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's the thing that like, people don't the really care about your bottle. Thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it, it's cool, but you know, it's like most people, what's interesting it's is not like, yeah. DR80 plus cool. 88, yeah. But the thing is, like, it's good because it shows, like, we keep telling people, like, to use, like, testimon- giving testimonials to, like, get links, et cetera. This gives you an example of, like, how we've actually done it for Atari Hacker. You can go and check. Now we have a link from Asana. This is nice. And this helps our domain authority, et cetera, et cetera. So it's quite nice. This was actually, so I made a video for AH Pro about how to outreach to people to get these kind of links. And so this was actually like the end result of it. It's not in the video because I just got it recently. But yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, you know, we do what we tell people to do. And that gives you an example of it. We can't share all of it. But this one, you can all email Asana if you want. I'm not just going to work out if everyone emails Asana at the same time. So I don't mind sharing it. So I think it's a cool example that we can actually share publicly 
unlike a lot of the stuff we do actually. So before we jump into actually the tips, etc., I wanted to kind of like talk like how we qualify about talking about competitive niches because it's like something that, you know, in podcasts, I kind of assume that people know who we are and know all our past, etc. at this point because we're like... 250 episodes in and in my head everyone's watched all of them or listened to all of them which is absolutely not the case so yeah it's like we have worked in many competitive niches actually all the way back to when we had an agency we actually worked for pretty competitive stuff like payday loans for example we used to rank uh, we ranked a website in the uk for payday loans uk we were number three i think for a long long time and they were really happy if you remember the company i don't think exists anymore but yeah like it was interesting to try to go white hat in the the payday loan industry. <laughs> that was pretty intense, but we actually did a pretty okay there. We worked in a gold IRA niche. So if you're not in the US, it's basically retirement accounts and people invest in gold like to like prevent themselves from like being hit by recessions if they invest in stocks, etc., stuff like that. And so it's pretty popular as a niche. It's a financial services is very competitive as well. And uh, we have some examples we'll share a little bit later in this podcast of like how we managed to get links to that niche, et cetera. So that was a tricky one. The site we sold last year as well was in pretty much, like I would say, at least top three most competitive software sub-niches, I would say. Like they might, hosting might be a bit more competitive than this, but like it might be second, you know? So that was a tricky one. When I started working, actually, I worked in the fitness influencer industry as well. I was helping in like, you know, some people get quite popular on YouTube, et cetera. Don't really want to say who they are. They might or might not be linked to like random porn videos as well. So I don't necessarily want people to. <laughs> we worked in the supplement industry you, you, as well. You can have a lot of comments in the YouTube in the YouTube comments about. I, about I may this I now. may be baiting that as well. You know, it's like you know I'm, <laughs> I'm tricking my way up in the online marketing industry by mentioning random porn stuff and kind of like inceptioning the growth in a competitive niche. You know, but anyway, we ranked. Whatever also, floats your boat. Yeah. We also ranked pretty high in the supplement industry we rank for protein powder type keywords not that long ago actually authority hacker itself is a pretty fierce industry so it's like yeah that is a pretty one and we've also done small jobs so these ones they're more like we helped with the campaigns rather than we ran the campaigns where we worked for Expedia for example in travel uh, we work for personal injury lawyers in the US in some pretty competitive areas we worked with car insurance quotes etc so we've done a lot of like these quite difficult dishes. These last three, as I said, we were helping in the campaign, not doing the whole thing. The previous ones were pretty much running the campaigns here. But basically, we have been around with some pretty difficult niches outside of like, you know, B2C, Amazon stuff, etc. And so I think it's going to be quite interesting for, especially for people who want to get off Amazon, actually, want to get into, you know, weight loss, want to get into, as I said, competitive software niches. If you want to go into hosting niche, for example, even WordPress niche is very competitive. What else is a Finance, anything, yeah. anything to do with like money, Cryptos. credit cards, loans, yeah, crypto, CBD, ah, so CBD all the rage yeah. these days. So these niches, like we're talking about these niches, and um, but I think there's a lot to learn from everyone there because it's like a lot of tactics we're going to talk about. You can take them into less competitive niches and kind of like dominate if you use them as well. And I think when we have been into like less competitive niches, I mean, I'm thinking about one of our sites right now that's like way lower DR than everyone else and kind of like starting to tower over a lot of competitors and doing really well, mostly because we apply some of the, uh, apply some of these things. So. I think there's a little bit for everyone, but we're also going to be dividing this podcast into multiple sections so that we're going to group the tips together. We're first going to be talking about strategy, then we're going to be talking about content. 
and we're going to be talking about links. I know you guys love links. And we kind of like, we have a category where we just threw everything else that we didn't know where to put. So I put MISC in the notes, but like it's a little bit of everything. It's quite interesting still. So we're going to do that. And then essentially Mark and I are going to take turn and talk about this. So I'm going to start actually. Oh, you want to start talking? Yeah, I'll start. So Go ahead. when you want to tackle a competitive niche, it's expensive. Right. And this is why I would never recommend someone who's starting their first site or even really your second or third site, unless you have significant amount of capital ready to spend. And there'll be a significant amount of time before you make that start making that back. Uh, we're talking mid five figures minimum, absolute minimum to even think about tackling some of these niches. And for some of the most competitive ones and like finance and that, you're looking like six figures, multiple six figures of investment money just to really get started because the ceiling is that high. The way I like to look at it is to think of if you actually break down all your costs, normally with a, a small affiliate site, you have, well, I'm going to produce a hundred articles and this is my cost per article and I'm going to, I don't know, build X amount of links and I reckon I can, that's going to cost me this. And you can sort of start to add in some tool costs, add, sort of start to work out a budget. But the thing is, once you get into these larger, more competitive spaces, there's all sorts of extra costs that you end up incurring in your production. Like we end up making a lot of content and then thinking, ah, oh, actually, this is not good enough. So let's go back and, and do it again. We rebuild a lot. We're constantly going back and editing content. Our link building campaigns are very custom to the, the space. So it may be, we'll talk about this a little bit later, about like creating unique software tools or free tools or something to give away. And all these things, you know, running PR and all that, all these things get really, really expensive. And you just need to have a sizable budget behind you to compete. Because like the big danger with this is that you spend a load of money to start with, and then you give up before you, you know, start making the big bucks. So you have to come into this with a sizable wallet or someone backing you. Yeah, I think there's a counter argument to that one is like if you're really, really, really good at that niche and you're able to create really outstanding content, like then it's like you're the crafter of the content. You cannot hire this kind of talent usually. You know, like let's say, let's say we were going into the hosting niche, for example. And let's say I'm able to do like the absolute most amazing graphs that compare the hostings, et cetera, over time, except like something really cool that like nobody else has done. And that really helps people picking the right hosting or something. And maybe I would like, I would probably use YouTube because it's like, that's probably the one that's like the easiest to rank for and get some traction. People talk about you, link to you, get to notice you or something. You might be able to then cut a lot of the costs, but then that means that you're not really, you have to craft the content. Like, I don't think you can just go on ProBlogger and find someone that's going to create that content that's so good that is going to like cut your costs, etc. So it's a bit of a just a, Just as a counterpoint to that. So there's actually a website which did exactly that. It's called hostingfacts.com. Uh, and they built a tool, they use another piece of software to interface with like all the hosting companies and they put websites on all those companies and like monitor the uptime and performance and all that. But like the infrastructure to do that costs like thousands per month and not to mention all the, the time to like set them all up and deploy them and all that. So even with that, it's just it's getting expensive quite quickly. I know what you mean, though, like there's there's a certain craftsmanship that applies that certain few people have that you can't hire. And that's why all these marketers and all these companies have to do all these other tricks and, you know, build all these tools and stuff in order to compete with like raw, genuine content in the same way. 
Yeah, I mean, you can reduce your costs. You cannot like make it zero, but like, you know, instead of six figures, you might need like five figures or something. If you end up doing a lot yourself and you're really, really talented at the niche and you can show some stuff. I would also add to it that it's even for people like that, it's getting harder and harder for those yeah. people to compete in Google these days. If it's just on YouTube or on social media, different story, but on Google, like it's... That's why I would get noticed like on these, sites, on you know? YouTube, social media, etc., and then use that to get links to my site and then hopefully with some time start getting that like passive Google, uh, Google traffic etc but like in any niche anyway it takes forever and that's the next point actually you need to be patient even if you like part of the reason it costs so much is because it takes a lot of time and so you essentially negative for a really long time and so it's not just about oh I have six figures I can start competing in three months or something like not even like you might be and for very competitive niches I think sometimes two years two, three years might be what you're looking at to start really like rolling, you know? And that is going to take you a long time. I mean, we have a blog post on Atari Hacker on like how long does it take to rank on Google? And we like scrape 2 million search results or something to just look. And then the average, the median day, sorry, of the top one position on Google is like 1,380 days or something. It's like, it's really high. So basically like pages are like three to four years old when they actually start being like number one, etc. So it's, it takes a long time, especially in competitive niches. Like I was before this podcast, I was Googling a bunch of competitive keywords. I was Googling like best WordPress hosting, best CBD oil, etc. There's no new pages. <laughs> like they, it's like all this stuff has been around for ages and it's like hundreds of linking root domains, etc. And so it's going to take you a very long time. But one thing, one argument to this is like if you know that it takes like 1,380 days, let's say on average, for to reach number one for a keyword. Then it might be a good idea, even though you have no chance to rank for a keyword that you really want at some point, to create that URL early. So it starts aging and you start essentially accumulating links to that URL. Because you cannot accumulate links to a URL that doesn't exist, but you can start accumulating links to even a few to a URL that even if it doesn't rank um, exists, you know, and then you you add that URL quickly in a, guest, in a guest post that you do or something like this, and you might do quite well with over time trying to snag that ranking. So even though it makes no sense from a cure difficulty point of view and competition point of view, your DR20 and then everyone's DR80, it might be a good idea to still create these URLs for competitive keywords if one day you aspire to rank for them because it takes so long. And so speaking about future aspirations as well, uh, it's quite common that sites will brand very broadly, but actually just start off creating like one subcategory or one category worth of content to develop like intense relevancy around that. We did this with the site we sold a year or two ago. The site was very broad. There was like four main categories. And I think three of them just had like 300 word articles written, you know, text broker or something like that. And the rest was like really good content written by, right? It was just to position the site as a broader site and also to give us room to expand should we have chosen to go that, that direction in the future. But I think by focusing just on one category, that allowed us to, first of all, really nail content and make sure we're doing a very good job of it because we didn't have to worry about figuring out all the other things which were a little bit different from the initial category we focused on. And it also sends a really strong like relevancy signal to Google. We, we've noticed consistently that, let's say you have these same four categories, if you start filling up each category just a little bit, then it feels like almost Google doesn't know exactly what your site's focusing on and what should it be about. So it doesn't really count any of them seriously. But if you fill up one category, you know, to the max, then it, it gets a very strong signal that, okay, the site is, is about that. And those terms seem to do 
better more quickly. Anecdotally, that's yeah, our you're basically seen as relevant for that one category. Like it, Google just kept like, okay, like 90% of the pages are about this topic, so this size is about this topic. And that means that the other topics would not rank very well, but you don't care that much. You'd rather rank really well for one subtopic. And then later when you are growing in, basically there's kind of like, in my head, there's that correlation between authority and how broad of a spectrum you can go for, you know? It's like when you're low authority, that's why you see these like DR20 exact match domains or like really narrow domains. I have that video that came up that talked about these toilets websites, for example. It's like, I, I was doing this and I realized that toilet is actually a niche and some people are making websites just about toilets and there's quite a lot actually. <laughs> and like these sites are ranking quite well because they just focus on toilets versus maybe like home improvement sites that, you know, do a bit of everything. And as a result, they don't rank as well. So low authority, they manage to still take these keywords. But if they if you're low authority and broad, then that's when you're kind of struggling, basically. So you only expand once you reach a certain degree of authority. And that's how you tend to do better for your rankings. The next point actually is that if you want actually early results, really, because the thing is like the best way to stop bleeding money is to reach to be as close as possible to break even, right? So even if it's competitive in these niches, etc., you can find a few keywords that make you some money and like instead of losing three, four, five thousand dollars per month on your site, you lose only like three, four hundred dollars, then it's a big deal. You can run so much longer with the same amount of money because you managed to get some keywords. And so for that, there's a few things that you need to think about in competitive niches that's a little bit different from, let's say, running an Amazon site. And the first one is small keywords are okay, right? It's like, I don't mind going for a, even a keyword with like 50 search volume or something like that. If I have an offer that will pay me like $200 per sale or something, it's very frequent that these offers make like, on, on tiny keywords make like, one to three sales per month or something. But like if a page makes like $400 a month and costs me like maybe $250 with all staff cost and everything to put together, I'm more than happy. Like it's great. Like three months like that, it's like, it's highly profitable. So like go for tiny keywords. I tend to like VS keywords, for example, they tend to be quite easy in pretty much every niche. Single feature about a product, for example, as well. So again, I'm going to take that uh, hosting niche example. Let's say that um, you want hosting services that support HTTP2, for example, like this kind of like new protocol. Maybe you can go for that tiny single feature keyword. And it's like, there's not a lot of people searching for that, but you can quickly rank for that because the big hosting sites don't bother writing for it. I'm not even sure you'll find that keyword in a keyword tool, but I might try it if it pays well. And then, yeah, you kind of like essentially get this. Every niche has these clusters of just like really juicy keywords that seem to go a bit under the radar because everyone focuses on like the reviewing the top products or roundup reviews of like the most obvious terms. So like going one level below that or finding some like use case and then finding a cluster of keywords about like ways different products and that use case like in combination has worked really, really well for us. And because these are super competitive niches, as you said, you make a lot of money per sale usually. It comes worthwhile. Yeah. One thing I like to find as well is like keywords where like competitors rank, but they didn't really intend to rank for that keyword. They didn't target it. So it's like in the title tag, you don't see the keyword. Uh, it's like slightly off, etc. Like usually you can go and get these, like you kind of find a variation that they didn't want. So same in that video I, I published recently, there was like best flushing toilet and best flushing toilets on the market. And it's like, you can grab best flushing toilets on the market quite easily. Uh, and then the bigger one, well, it's like you might get it, you might not get it, but you can just target that long tail variation and at least get some traffic like this. You need to do a lot of these like variations, plays, especially when you're like the underdog and you don't have as much authority, then just go and grab these. It's like there's no there's no shame in that. You can still rank for the main keyword eventually. 
but you will get the little trickles of traffic that will make you some money, hopefully take you to break even. Most of all sites, when they reach break even, they rank for tiny variations like that. And it's enough to pay the bills already. Another thing we've mentioned it a lot, so I'm not going to go super long about this, but sniping feature snippets, like kind of like doing that play where you can rank number five, then snipe the feature snippet and be number one, because it's only a non-page play. You don't need to catch up on links, etc. So it's a lot easier. You can play around that and actually like get quite good results around that. So that's the kind of like tiny things that you can do at the beginning to get faster results, go for these tiny keywords, go for variations, maybe snipe the feature snippets or only aim to be number five and then try to snipe it with on page. And you need to be sneaky, basically. You need to not be afraid to fight for a tiny keyword where your competitors are not willing to fight because they're too big to care about it, you know? And speaking of being sneaky, you'll find that in very competitive niches, everyone suddenly becomes a little bit more devious and there's all sorts of copycatting and, and things like that goes on. So as a result of, and we'll talk more about that uh, later in the, this episode, but as a result of that, quite a few sites in these spaces have taken to blocking tools like Ahrefs or SEMrush. So the data you can often extract from them is somewhat minimal. Fortunately, most of them aren't aware of some of the smaller tools out there like SERPstat. So if you use a secondary tool or like not so popular tool like that, they often won't be blocking their crawler and you can still get the, the data you need from it. Yeah, I'm wondering if uh, Ebro Suggest as well is like a really not really blocked tool. And it's really cheap. Uh, it's like 29 bucks per month or something. So it's like, it might be one of these like backup tools where you get the data from your competitors when they block Ahrefs or SEMrush. Usually that's the two people block. Yeah, I would try these two. We have a lifetime substat from AppSumo, so I tend to use that. It's been very useful in these kind of niches. By the way, what's the way to check if someone is actually blocking Ahrefs? Like, you can I, check I know in it looks a bit weird in the tool, but... Yeah, robot.txt and it says disallow yeah. Href bot, bot or something. I can't remember the name, but it says Ahrefs in there. And same for ICMRush, and then you can find these. And it's like you need to be it's you need to be careful because like some other tools they buy data from each other, you know, and so like you might end up being blocked even though this tool is not blocked as well. So it's a bit uh, it's a bit tricky. For me, Substat has done a good job. Uh, and I'm wondering if uh, Neil Patel's tool might not be even better if you don't have a lifetime substat like we do, actually. So that's the ones that I would check. Then the next point I want to talk about is site structure and kind of like, you know, when you build a site and it ages and you have all these regrets of like how you structure it, you made your, your categories, your URLs, etc. We had that a lot. To be honest, I have a lot of regrets on Autoriaco, for example. <laughs> I wish we could fix some stuff, but like, well, it is what it is. And that's the thing, changing your URLs is just a no-no in SEO, right? You don't do that. And so creating a much cleaner site structure, preparing better than what your competitors have done in the past, etc. It has allowed us to really overtake some much bigger competitors in terms of authority because our site is just cleaner, nicer, well-structured, and like Google understands it better. So it's one of these opportunities as well when I look at niches. It's like how good of a, of a job did people do or did they already overgrow their plan? And then it's kind of like messy. There's content all over the place. Like you can see they're just patched up categories together and they have like, usually I look at hot pages, for example, if they have like category pages with, let's say 20 pages of archives, you know, it's bad, right? It's like, it's really bad to crawl for Google, etc. You know, it's trouble. So usually I'm looking at that. If it's a messy site structure from the competition, there is an opportunity. If you do a well-structured site from our experience, 
you tend to do better with a lot less domain rating, for example. Like, I mean, I can say it, I'm not gonna say which site, but we have a DR8 site that's outranking DR like 40 plus sites these days because of that, because the site structure is better and because we've done a better job at planning than a lot of competitors and it might not be like all pro SEOs actually. Now let's jump on to the content part of things. I'm gonna take the first one as well. And I think one thing that is kind of different from like less competitive niches is that content updating is very important, right? It's like content freshness is a massive ranking factor. If you haven't tried, just take an old blog post, change the publish date and just update it and re-index it in Webmasters Console. There's probably a 50% chance you're gonna jump up in rankings. And the thing is, you might not see that in low competition niches because nobody does it. So it's like, it's not really a factor, but when everyone else does it and your competitors will do it in competitive niches, you will sink slowly and like your content will decay slowly. I've shown multiple examples of that in the past on our own sites, unfortunately, but you will have to essentially go in there and then you see your competitors update and you'll see like, one thing that pisses me off is when we compete on like a least post keyword, for example, like I give a keyword example, affiliate programs, best affiliate programs, affiliate programs, <laughs> literally that niche, that keyword is started at like 10 affiliate programs, right? And then people just put more, so it went like 10, then the computer update to 12, then we update to like 15, etc. We are like 120 plus these days on that least post and it's still going, etc. Like I think someone updated to 145 or something recently. You know, it keeps going, etc. And so you will have to enter that fight or you will have to give up your keywords. I can definitely see it. For example, on a toy hacker, you can put a toy hacker in Ahrefs and look at the pages we did not update and you will see that we're slowly sinking in rankings. That's part of the game. You will have to do that. Now, to go back to that, what I said earlier about uh, creating your pages early if you aspire to rank for big keywords. I would say this is also part of your strategy. Your strategy for these big keywords is created once, you will not probably not rank, just don't expect too much. But then let's say you want to refresh it and then you do another round of link building and then you refresh it a year later, you do another round of link building, etc. And then a few years later, like three, four years in, which is really the time frame for these big competitive niches, your page has a hundred plus linking root domains and then you start being able to actually, you know, maybe by that time you have a decent domain rating, you have a little bit of site age, etc., And you start actually having a shot at competing for that keyword. And then you rewrite it in a way that you try to actually capture the keyword, maybe try to match the search intent a bit more and be a bit less link baity and kind of like play on that multi-round strategy for these big keywords. So I think overall, you're going to have to think about rewriting your content many times and these days, I tend to prefer having smaller sites with like constantly refreshed content for, let's say, you know, 200 keywords versus having like a, a 1000 pages website. It's the way we run things. I like it better personally. Just much easier to manage as well. Yep. So let's move on to the next one. So this one is around how you have to balance so many different kind of priorities in your content. So we're talking about search intent. So you have to match what Google thinks people want. Your content has to be sufficiently detailed. So, you know, the quality of the information in there needs to be really good and inform people well, but it also needs to be actionable so people can read it and actually take something away, implement it, get value, be able to get value from it, not just feel better from it. It also needs to be readable. So someone who reads the whole thing, every single word is going to have a good experience, but also someone who just scans quickly and picks out a few bold words or bullet points or subheadings can also get a lot of value from it. So you have to have both of those people in mind when you're creating your content. It has to be SEO optimized, but not so much so that it's hard to read or it feels clunky when you're 
when you're reading it. It has to look inviting, but it also has to be well monetized, but not too well monetized because that can hurt the SEO aspects of things as well. And most importantly, it has to be done. So you're balancing all these amazing things that you want to do and you have this idea of creating this the perfect content to defeat all these idiots who have been making money on on this for years. But you know, you spend so much time working on it that you don't actually get enough content out or you don't you can't put out the volume to compete with those people. So balancing all those things against time without spending a small fortune is the name of the game when it comes to very competitive niches. And it's a very, very tough thing to do. And I'm not really sure what practical advice I can give for a set to how to do this other than don't try and make things too perfect because it's a problem that you and I, me especially, Gail's the guy that, that's just like, all right, let's just get out there, let's get it done. And I'm like, oh no, it's gotta be good. It's got we gotta do this, we gotta do this, gotta do this. But then it's like too slow. So actually the, the right answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Certainly our preference of what worked well for us with the the last site that we, we sold a year or so ago was to just get start getting it going, get some content out there with the priority of ranking. And then you can optimize all those other things a little bit later, like you can dial up the monetization, you can, you know, tweak the SEO, the on-page, run it through Surfer and, you know, all these other things. So you can start moving it, you know, from page two to the bottom of page one. And then then when it's like higher up, you can start working on uh, the readability and like improving things. So as long as you get it done to begin with and you have a, a page that's, that's ranking, you can start optimizing things a little bit later as well. Yeah, I think claiming the URL and then working on it is the better way than like taking forever to even publish the URL in the first place. Even if it's a bad one, like these days, it's like I'm almost to the point where I want to publish like 300 word articles on keywords I want to rank for eventually. Because what it does is like when I go back and I do my internal linking, for example, let's say we're working on the site and like, we're like, okay, what can we link to when we publish this other proper post, you know? Then we have all these posts, these posts on these subtopics that we can internal link to and we're building all of this. And then it's really easy to just come back and change the content of that page. But it's like, you don't really do all this internal linking and aging the URL, et cetera. Like I'm thinking about URLs, like people think about domains, you know, people are like, oh, all the domains rank better, et cetera. It's kind of the same for URLs, you know? And so like, that's why I'd rather just like throw one quickly, not really promote it, not really tell anyone or whatever, just throw a few internal links here and there and then kind of like come back later and be like, actually, now it's probably time to do this properly. Let's actually produce it properly so that this URL itself can rank. Now it built up enough authority and age, you know? So my next point actually goes a little bit on that and it's going to be on exploiting your competitor's laziness. And really, when you go for competitive niches, the thing is like, now search intent is so important. Like, you know, you, I mentioned that many times, but like if everyone has a list post ranking, you can just go and create something massively original, etc. You need a list post. You will not rank if you don't have a list post. So the only game is production value. Like, you know, you have to do a list post. The question is like, how well will you do it? And production value is illustrations, videos, like look and feel, quality of the copywriting, readability, like engagement with subheadlines, etc., etc. All of these were respecting all the SEO rules. And so the thing is like a lot of competitors, once they're big enough, let's say they're like you're DR 30 and they're DR 70, you know, like you're competing in that level of gap. What is a important keyword for you? Like, you know, something that you have a shot at ranking for, for them is just support content. They just, you know, took their shittiest writer and they gave it to, the, to him. He's like, just make that page and we'll just throw some affiliate links and you know what, it's going to be long tail traffic for us. 
If you overdo them on these pages, then your chances of ranking are pretty high, except that once you kind of like add up doing many of these pages, eventually you start having decent traffic, you start collecting links, you start actually catching up on authority, and you can start actually competing on bigger and bigger keywords with them. So essentially find what is like a rent, like, you know, second range for your competitor, but still like quite juicy for you when they're not putting all their efforts because they're focusing on these big keywords. So for example, they're focusing on best WordPress hosting, but nobody's focusing on like fastest WordPress hosting, for example. Maybe if you overdo it on fastest WordPress hosting when they made an average page, you can go and pick up that keyword. And then that's how you essentially put your foot down in a competitive niche. So that would be my trick on this. Let's jump onto links because people want to hear about links. Okay, so in competitive niches, outreach alone is usually not enough. So there's just a couple things happening here. First, you're always throttled by the amount of outreach you can do per day, per week, per month because of sending limits and whatnot. But you're also throttled by just the raw number of sites there are that you can possibly get, get links from. Eventually, you're going to hit everyone in your niche. And that's why things like cross-niching and all that is very important. We'll talk about that in a bit. But you will run out of targets to get links from. On the flip side of that as well is that you pick up a lot of links naturally through your info content, which ranks and people researching it and like, you know, how does such and such work about web hosting? They'll, they'll Google it, they'll find your article and they'll link to yours. But if it's a very competitive niche and there's existing competitors already competing there and they're already ranking at the top for all the, these keywords, then they're picking up all these natural links as well. So you need to go beyond these to really start acquiring a lot of links. And usually that means developing some kind of free tool, some kind of maybe some kind of like offer, maybe some kind of like resource page, ultimate guide. And I'm not just talking like a 2000 word blog post. I'm talking like something that pulls in data from other places or constantly updated. One good example for that is uh, Glenn's Viper Chills site. He has gaps.com. Gaps are detailed. He has detailed, I think. Detail.com, yeah. And on there, he has this list of blogs that is based on like number of mention of the blog. And it's like dynamically updated and he picked up all these keywords and now he gets essentially passive link building to his site for having these keywords. So he ranks for a like cooking blog, he ranks for all this, etc. People link to him because he's always the most up-to-date page because he essentially made it an app versus just making a random list that gets outdated three months later, you know? I really like as well uh, whoishostingthis.com if you want to want to find out which host is hosting the company or there's another one which identifies like which WordPress plugins are being used, which theme is being used on a website, like little free tools like this, really, really useful and they get they get linked to a lot. So you need to invest time and money in developing these in order to get those kind of exponential link building campaigns versus the slow and steady that outreach uh, based link building will, will usually bring you. You need a passive link building. You need something that will just bring you links if you do nothing. And you need that on top of doing active link building. And it's kind of like how you will like grow faster. It's not easy. I mean, like I'm thinking of, of that site we sold. It's like we had some interesting uh, like software angles. Basically, some software was like updated every year and we would essentially make the update of that every single year uh, with the angle of the site. And it's like that worked pretty well. We could get quite a lot of like passive links to that on like how to do this year's version of the software and how to use it. Another thing you want to talk about as well is cross niching. So, like if you're in finance, for example, if you're in travel, 
pretty much like, and we'll talk about paid links after, but pretty much like 99% of outreach opportunities, people will ask you for money, right? Let's not lie about this, it's going to happen. And so obviously there's the opportunity to pay for links and this is the next debate. But the thing is you can do as well is you can essentially touch niches that are semi-related to what you're doing. So I'm going to give you an example of what we did with the agency because I think it's probably a really creative angle and it is this gold IRA client that I mentioned in the intro. So essentially it's investing in gold, right? And we just found anything related to gold and we started doing outreach for it. So for example, we made, when it was the Olympics, we made the article that explained how much gold is there really in a gold medal. And then we would get a bunch of links from sports sites. We like made nice infographics, etc. We also had... Interesting fact, just for no apparent reason, but uh, there's actually more silver in a gold medal than there is gold. So, <laughs> so you still figure. remember that. Another one that we did, I remember from this site, was how to salvage gold from old Nintendo 64 and Super NES cartridges. So if like, if you played old school video games, you know, you had these kind of like tapes to play games. And if you look inside, there was this kind of like uh, circuits connectors. And then this was actual gold on there. And so you could essentially buy these cartridges for like a few dollars at like garage sales and salvage more gold walls than it, you actually paid for it. And so like we made a guide on that and get a bunch of links from video game sites. So, I wouldn't make this like the only link building strategy because then you're going to get a lot of like irrelevant links, but some of it, you can get some good ones. And, you know, we got some really big links from that, et cetera. And that worked really well. My all time favorite one, by the way, in the in the gold space was there was a, a solid gold toilet, which was created. I think this was in Hong Kong and you could pay to use it. <laughs> it was like 50 bucks or something. <laughs> <laughs> but like we made an article about this it did really really well maybe i should put this in the, on this toilet site thing. you know maybe i should do something yeah. like this on this toilet site actually i'm thinking of another one related to toilets too i'm sorry but <laughs> we were working for a plumber like a plumber in seattle if you remember and we made that kind of like creative angle or like what happens if everyone flushes at the same time as well and it's like how it would overflow the sewer system and like how I, like all the stuff would come back in every house and everything like basically like this and it got picked up by a lot of local news for example so it gives you an idea of like the sort of creative angles you can take to get links in a white hat way without paying but we're talking about like you can do this with any site but yeah. you almost have to do this in when you're in a, a competitive niche. And we did that quite a lot also on the site we sold, etc. Like there was a lot of like off angles, etc. of like weird ways we would talk about it. We would write the news a lot as well. Like writing the news can be quite powerful. Like if you take some news and kind of like angle it for your niche, I don't know, like let's say the White House. SEM journal. <laughs> no, I'm thinking, yeah, not like that. But like, <laughs> let's say like you have your hosting site and like the White House website goes down, for example. Then you can talk about like, how they could have avoided it or like, you know, what actually happened technically or something. There was a really good one on that actually when I think it was Obamacare came out, there was some technical issues with it and there's something to do with WordPress. Did they use WordPress or they for part of it or something and it didn't work or there was there was something anyway, someone had a really good angle with that. Exactly. It it did really well. You can use Jack and then a lot of publications like Mashable, TechCrunch, etc. are willing to you and it's a really good link date as well. So doing this kind of like, you need to essentially be a bit more creative than just your random copy-paste guest post outreach template. And that's what it's going to take. Let's talk about paid links though, because that's, I think that kind of goes together as well. Yeah. Paid links are almost, I say almost, they're almost a necessity 
when it comes to super competitive niches. That's, that's just a fact. In the vast majority of cases, at the top level in almost every case, mid-level and below, you can kind of get away with it sometimes if you like brute force yourself through with like outreach and all sorts of creative stuff, but you're just at a significant disadvantage in these spaces. And you know, we're not against paid links by like any moral perspective or anything like that. At the end of the day, it comes down to risk versus reward. And when you're dealing with a super competitive niche, Generally speaking, the reward is very, very high because affiliate commissions are big or whatever it is you're promoting, you tend to make a lot of money that the top sites are making, you know, millions, sometimes tens of millions per month. And when that amount of money is at stake, you know, it becomes more appealing to or it becomes more worthwhile to take that risk and to go for paid links. So it's something you're most likely going to encounter and you're most likely going to deal with. I know for like beginners and stuff, we say it's something you should avoid and, and all that kind of thing, but just accept reality when you, when you go yeah, into these, these ultra competitive niches. It's, I think it's, it's one it's of these things of where you grow a sense for like the trade-off you're making when you walk a lot in these niches, etc. And that's why I would not recommend beginners do that, but it's true that in more competitive niches, people pay for links. And it's like, there's, there's nothing that you can say against that. You can, you know, put it, put your hands in front of your eyes and like not see it, no, not choose not to see it. But the truth is it's happening. And to be honest, it kind of, you know, as you were saying it, I was thinking it kind of baffles me. Like something can generate tens of millions of dollars, but like you can't compensate the people that help it make it money. You know, like you can't pay people for linking to it basically, which is kind of crazy. I think there's not many businesses or business situations where that's the case. But yeah, paid links, yeah, it is a reality of the market. And the more competitive the niche, the more paid links are part of the game and the equation. You go in travel, you go in finance, etc. Good luck without paid links. I remember when we did uh, payday loans, we did it without paid links at the time, but holy crap, <laughs> that was difficult. <laughs> that was difficult, yeah. So another thing I want to say about link building as well is you're going to have to keep building links to the pages that rank already. And I think that's something that's a bit different from, it's kind of still the case for even less competitive niches, but like it's very much so the case for competitive niches where it's not because you rank number one that you're out of the wood debt. And it's like, that's the best way to lose your ranking. So you need to essentially monitor the people below you and how aggressively they're going after your keywords or how aggressively they're building links. You need to match them, basically. And all the, and then if you match them, then you're most likely going to keep your rankings, although, you know, with on-page tricks, etc., they might take you over. But if you do nothing, then eventually your rankings will drop. It's kind of weird because Google tends to, like, keep you there even if you're, like, below in metrics for a while, and poof, you drop to, like, number six or seven. Like, you don't drop number two or something. It's like you just drop. All of a sudden, on the morning, you wake up, you don't have your rankings anymore, and then getting it, now it's the same for your competitor. The guy that's number one, he's going to have that inertia, and it's like, even though you're working really hard to catch back up, it's actually going to take you a while to actually take it back. So you need to keep building links to pages that rank. It's probably some of the most important pages to build links to because that's the money you have today. And for me, that's sometimes more important than what I may have, you know? So it's something that you need to think about. Just to add on like to another point, kind of related to that as well, the reality of these markets is that they're super competitive and everyone is looking at what everyone else is doing the whole time. So everyone knows Everyone is looking at all your new links and all the new content that you published and they're trying to assess, do, is there scope for us to include this? Or if they got a link from there, can we outreach? Can we get a link from them as well? How did they get it? So you can expect your competitors to come in and, and start almost piggybacking on your link acquisition. And you almost have to do the same with your competitors if you want to stay competitive yeah, with to. them as well. So being like uber competitive and really keeping a close eye on, on what your competitor is doing when it comes to link building, almost essential. 
Not just link building, pretty much everything, right? It's like you want to put your computers in HFs at least once a month and you want to check like which new content they have. I like the oh, more than that. I mean, you need to be checking them weekly to, yeah, to, to stay. But like I like to check the content they republish as well. So it's like I like to use the content explorer and then the content explorer is going to show you new published pages, but it's also going to show you republished pages. And when someone's just constantly republishing the same page, it's telling me they're making money here and they really care about that page. And so like that's probably what you want to keep your eyes on. And be like, okay, do, do we have this keyword? Do we want to rank for that? What offer are they promoting, et cetera, et cetera. But overall, in most cognitive niches, everyone copies everyone. Most sites end up being 95% the same and 5% different. And it's kind of like these edge cases. And it's kind of, that's the same for every competitive industry, right? It's like iPhone versus Android. They, all, they copy each other all the time as well. And it's kind of like, now you can kind of use both and it doesn't change that much, et cetera. So most competitive niches, it works that way. There's going to be copycats for everything. And it's part of the game. And you can complain about this all you want. But the truth is you, you can play the game or you cannot play the game. If you don't play the game, you will not rank. And that's basically so it. So here's a good analogy to like get your head around it. Because I feel this is actually more a mindset thing than an actual problem. If you go back to the 1920s and 1930s and you look at Formula One cars from different teams. They all look very different. I mean, you can clearly see that these are completely different cars built by completely different companies. If you look today at a Formula One car, they all look the same. Okay, I know if you're an expert, you, you love the sport, you'll be able to tell whose is whose. Uh, but you know, you take the paintwork off and 99% of the general public uh, who don't follow it that closely would have no idea. They all look the same. Why? Because that is the aerodynamic model that works according to the current set of rules. It's physics, essentially. And the same is kind of true, the same is kind of true with websites, right? Everyone's not copying, but everyone's like looking to get the best out of what everyone else is doing and trying to piece together the best parts of what everyone's doing in order to rank. And the people who are best at doing that rank. So therefore, when other people are trying to learn from them, they're learning from the things that have worked. And this this like piggybacking on success thing. That's evolution, you know, that's how Self-fulfilling prophecy. Or, yeah, yeah, that's the one, yeah. Like that's how evolution things evolve. And anything competitive is the same way. It's the same with sports and football teams, etc. Like they copy each other's strategies and everything. And it's like, they try to build the same profiles and it's really these edge cases. And it's usually when you get to this level of competition, it's literally just an execution competition. Who is able to execute better on the strategy that everyone at this point understands? And that's who wins. And that's why it's quite interesting because competitive niches, I would say, probably bring different kinds of people competing in these niches. Like It's like the people that are obsessed with details. It's the people that don't mind grinding the same thing versus the creative people on maybe some less competitive niches that, you know, create great engaging stuff, etc. It's not the case for these highly competitive SEO niches. You end up with mostly the same page, just trying to treat it like a process. You just want to be a robot and repeat that thing and just look very closely in detail at these things and just be like, oh, what happens if we change the label of this table from best hostings 2020? Do people click more? Do I make more money, etc. And, you know, A-B testing becomes more of a thing, etc. Like all these things become quite important. So it's a, it's a personality type as well, I would say. Do you want to take the next one? Yeah, so the next one is around affiliate negotiation and dealing with these kinds of things. So you will find it's completely different, especially if you be used to dealing with Amazon. You know, you sign up for the program, you never talk to anyone there, you get your check at the end of the month and 
and that's that. It's all all kind of automated. When you start working in these really competitive spaces, and especially when you start sending a decent amount of traffic towards these these programs, the affiliate managers they'll be all over you. You'll be getting much more than a, a freaking um, coffee flask for, <laughs> for for Christmas. All sorts of incentives. They'll take you to conferences in Vegas and like get you you know nice suites and like all sorts of crazy stuff. But there's a transactional nature to this, right? They don't like you because you're you. They want, they want your traffic. Your, yeah. They want your traffic and they want your favor. So the entire relationships are often very transactional. And by that, I mean, you'll say like, oh, well, can we get an increasing commission because we're sending all this traffic now? And they'll be like, oh, well, yeah, but we want you to put us number one in your roundup review of, of this. And like th- those kind of discussions, those matter of fact kind of probably not FTC approved transactions <laughs> are, just the re- are just the reality of the, of the situation. I don't like those conversations very much. It doesn't fit well with my personality. But the fact is the vast majority of sites are, are behaving this way, are operating on, on this model. Uh, so if you're not, then that's potentially going to hold you back from unlocking higher commissions or it's just going to make your way of interacting with the affiliate programs and the affiliate managers more limited. I have a question for you. Which one are you the most uneasy with? Paying for a link or putting number one to someone in a roundup review that just like forces your hand? Putting out someone number one in a roundup review so you'd rather, um, that you'd doesn't, rather deserve, doesn't deserve it. Fair I'd enough. rather put higher quality content, like accurate content. Accuracy yeah, fair enough. Like At least you don't deceive, the, you don't deceive the reader. You know, it's like a paid link doesn't really deceive people. That If you pay to, for a link to a page that tells the truth, isn't that better in a sense than than if you are ranking? I mean, page I mean this is a whole whole other philosophical <laughs> debate. I would I would argue that those two things are not mutually exclusive. No, that was no just for like two things that you feel uneasy. Do one, with, you know? do one or the other, but yeah. I mean, there's a really interesting story. We we mentioned it on a podcast a, a while back, but uh, sleepopolis.com. They were doing this, so they got a lot of traffic in the sleep niche. They had roundup reviews with like best mattresses or whatever, and they would and they had an order of recommendations. And then they were saying to people, "Hey, give us more money, or we'll move you down the list." So it's kind of like extorting them. In That's a way. pretty bad to do it that way, yeah. And then the company, the Casper, I think it was. Uh, I could be wrong, so double check this. But I think they they basically said, no, we're not going to do that. And then they ended up suing them because they moved them down because they didn't pay them, which they're kind of in the right to do. But there was all sorts of shadiness going on in that thing. And I really want to do a whole podcast talking about this because it's such a fascinating story. I think if you put side by side all the times you mentioned that story, there's a podcast already. So I think, uh, yeah. I think we just <laughs> need to do some editing here. <laughs> but yeah, maybe we should actually. We should talk about the sleep mafia. We should make a podcast on the sleep mafia. Okay, I want to talk about quality of products as well. And it's like, essentially, when you go into a competitive niche, it's like, it's it's not even fair. Most of the time, there's like the main offer that everyone promotes everywhere, all the time. You know, Bluehost in hosting, for example. Uh, you go on pretty much any blogging site, they will promote Bluehost. Why? Because they pay the most money. And then most affiliates are just biased towards this. So it's, it's very hard to promote something else. And very often what you'll find is that actually... That offer actually converts very well, while the competing competing offers, even though they pay as much, have like half the conversion rate or something, so you make a lot less money. And so it's kind of a funny thing because when you promote that essentially top offer, let's say you, you have a WordPress hosting site, you promote Bluehost, you end up making more money, right? Because it's the offer that converts the best. And if you make more money, you can invest more in link building, content, etc. And so naturally over time, the sites that promote Bluehost, even though that's not the best offer, naturally overtake the top search results and actually end up 
influencing Google into believing what is the best hosting because Google essentially is reading all that content and be like, okay, well, these sites have the best metrics and they all say Bluehost is the best. So the search intent for that query is Bluehost should be said to be the best WordPress hosting. Otherwise, it's not correct, you know? You use like Surfer or something and yeah, they tell you, know, you, yeah. you have to have Bluehost in there like 43 times otherwise. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's difficult, yeah. Yeah, you know, sometimes you kind of have to go for these regardless of what you believe or not. Because and it, it's, so for example, I'll give you an example. Another example on Atari Hacker, we made a mediocre review of SEMrush and the argument was like, well, for $99 a month, we think you can get better things. This SEMrush is much better now, but at the time that was this. That review, even though the metrics were quite good, would never rank because every, because SEMrush paid a lot of money to affiliates and the top ranking pages and people who are putting a lot of efforts in ranking for that query also say SEMrush is absolutely amazing. And as a result... Just because of the negative sentiment, I believe it's hard to tell for sure. Like Google didn't confirm that, but we had no chance to rank for this. It was very difficult to even go past page four or something, even though we had much, much better domain metrics, page level metrics, etc. So it's quite interesting. And you will essentially have, again, you can take the easy way, enter the circle jerk, or try to fight the system, but it's very difficult, basically. Okay, so let's move on. The final point I want to talk about is consolidation. And that really is the name of the game in 2020. And I believe for the next few years, we're going to see more of that at this end of the spectrum. This is very obvious why. So when you're diverting a lot of traffic to a product to an offer, say, from one or from multiple websites, you have a lot that increases your relative strength in any negotiation. You have a lot of power and the product owner, if they're getting thousands of customers a day or a week from you, becomes very dependent on you. So they're going to let you get away with more. They're going to have to pay you more. They're going to have to up your commission level, give you more bonuses, incentives, and all these things. And, and by the way, at this end of the spectrum in competitive niches, it does skew quite quickly. So the more traffic, the more sales you're sending, you kind of get almost exponentially more, yeah, higher, more higher commission because of this. So the the people who have large sites can be earning 2.5, three times, sometimes four or five times in some niches as well, as much as people starting out per sale, which is huge because that same as what we we're saying before, it allows you to have so much extra money left over to spend on marketing and promotion and growth and con extra content and all these kinds of things. But as a consequence of that, it also means that any website which is on a lower tier commission is actually worth more to a company which has access to these higher tier commission brackets. So they can go in and they can pay 45, even 50x multiple for a site. And to a normal website investor, that may be not such a good investment, but this conglomerate can come in and then they can just switch out all their links for their higher higher paying links, which gets them even more clout because the total amount of, of sales are gonna be sending is even higher. And the net result is that they essentially, you know, double, triple the amount of money that, that a site's making just by switch, switching out the link so it becomes worthwhile. So for that reason, you get a lot of consolidation happening and all the, not necessarily brand new sites, but like small to medium sites that are starting to take off, they get snapped up quite quickly. So there's ups and downs to this. I mean, first of all, if you are trying to compete against these big companies, they're getting bigger all the time and they have so much money and it's so easy for them to acquire these sites and so worthwhile that it gets even harder to compete with them after they acquire these, these new sites. But if you want to sell to them, then you can often get very, very high multiples for sites from them for, um, because of this reason. Yeah, I mean, that's what happened to the site we sold, basically. Like it was a guy that had higher commissions than us. And it's like, even though we had a pretty good 
multiple. It's like for them, it's like I'm sure they've, they've made their money back quite quickly, etc. And uh, yeah, it worked out quite well for them. So yeah, that happens. I think that's a lot of what's feeding the marketplaces, you know, like the uh, not not Flipper, but like, you know, uh, Empire Flippers and uh, FE International, etc. Like there's basically these kind of like big guys that are just sitting on top and waiting for small guys to build sites for them and just buy them out. And it's basically kind of a game of like, can you beat the industry and then like take a payout or, or not? And basically the guys with all the money in hand, they just like wait here and just grab whatever's coming at them. You know? And we haven't seen any kind of nasty consequences of that. I'm sure it happens where people can sort of say, well, you know, you better sell to us for this price or we're going to go after all your keywords and just re- use all our resources to like drive down the value of your site. I've heard and then, that, but not in, oh, these, uh, not in these circles. Like I've heard that in some dirty online marketing circles, basically. Casinos um, and stuff, yeah. No, I'm not going to say where it comes from. It's just like someone told me the story. So it's like, I don't, I don't have any proof or anything. And there's no point throwing any discredit at anyone. But these things do happen. And uh, it's, a, it's a bit scary. And that's why a lot of people try to like hide their sites, etc. And not talk to... And that's also why we don't really share or everything we're working on because of that. Because it's too easy to get after us. So that's basically it. Anything else to say about competing, competitive niches, etc.? Nope. Would you like, um, do you prefer working on like smaller niches or like more competitive stuff, like more, more of this stuff? I like to do both actually. I think they're very different and they challenge you in, in different ways. Like I love looking a small to like sort of medium sized niche and thinking, oh, there's so much opportunity. How can we dominate this space? But at the same time, it's just a different set of challenges to say, oh, how can we try and get maybe a foothold in this very competitive space? And at the upper end of that spectrum, it's just n- not an area, you know, you or I have worked on in terms of like running our own, you know, multi-million dollar a month site we're not quite there yet hopefully one day but i think the play the play for people like us is actually not to necessarily go in like the most competitive niches so like not to jump in hosting or something like that but rather to take a bet on what are the next big niches and kind of like jump in so it's like i'm not gonna say but the the site we sold the niche in wasn't that big of a niche five six seven years ago you know it was an okay niche but it wasn't that big it's just a niche that grew really fast following certain events. And so essentially taking a bet, and you can take bets that lose and you just need one that really pays off where you kind of have a foothold before it becomes big. And I think that might be the play for people that instead of just essentially jumping into the absolute biggest, most competitive niches, right? Away, which you can do, if you're good at SEO, you can do like, I'm, I'm not that afraid into jumping into big niche, but I'm just calculating like the ROI, right? It's like, what if instead you just like, okay, like, the same way as people buy stocks and kind of like bet on the future, you do that. It's like, it doesn't mean they always win, but like some people win. I'd push back and say, you're essentially telling people buy low, sell high, which is great. But, but like, how do you do that? It's taking a bet. But like, you know, going to a niche that's not necessarily a bad niche, just a niche that you believe will grow in the future. I'll give a niche that grew massively this year, the pet niche. The pet niche, everyone got a pet because of the lockdowns. <laughs> And so, and so that's like, crazy, actually. Yeah. So I bought a puppy in exactly, February you got one. <laughs> this year, and uh, they now sell for two and a half times what I what yeah. I paid. It's like it's absolutely ridiculous. So that's the thing. And even if it didn't take off, it wouldn't be a bad niche, right? So you can get into these niches where you essentially take a bet, but like you'd probably be okay even if it doesn't take off massively. And then hopefully, if you hit enough of them, one or two of them is actually going to be massive. 
and you kind of grow with it and you're already in the market when it starts growing, you know? And that's kind of like maybe something to do for people that are quite good, but not necessarily ready to jump into financial services or something like this that's extremely competitive right now. So that's an example of like something like that. Also outdoors grew massively this year. Outdoors, survival, et cetera, grew massively. It was still a good niche. Like even if it didn't take off, like I'd be happy to have a site in this niche. But like the people that took a bet on that niche, well, they got lucky, they, they hit it up. And then now they, they can be making two, three times the money and grow with that niche as it keeps going. So that is something to consider as well when you pick a niche, like what is the future of it? What do you, like, what do you think could be taking off in the future based on, well, your vision of the world at this point, you know? And that can be an alternative way to do that. And then you can do all these things and then be big already by the time it actually gets big. So I like this approach. Like I would definitely, on a few of our new sites, like we're starting new sites now, take a few of these bets actually, I think. And if they, even if they don't get big, it's like it's an average site and you can either flip it or you can just, you know, hold it, you know? Anyway, we're gonna, actually, I'm going to be bringing back the question of the week here. And the question of the week is, do you want to go into a competitive niche after hearing everything we talked about or does it scare you? So go on the YouTube comments and drop us a comment below. And while you're at it, you can also drop a like to the video and also subscribe and click on the bell so you don't miss any of our videos. There's more videos than just the podcast coming out these days. So just check out the YouTube channel. It's not just going to be every Monday. And yeah, any final words of wisdom for people? Yeah, on Sunday, Authority Hacker Pro is coming out. Oh yeah, that part, that too. Keep an eye out for that. That's, that's the entire reason we kind of like run our business authority hacker. So maybe maybe worth matching, I don't know. <laughs> you can sign up for the notifications on authorityhacker.com slash pro. You can just put your email and you'll receive emails when this comes out. Yeah, it's a pretty big deal. There's some uh, cool surprises coming out with this launch as well. So watch out for our emails. We'll let you know a little bit more about that in just a few days. And until then, stay safe and we'll see you next week. Bye.